What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and we've been working our way through the track sessions from this previous National Disciple Making Forum. This is content you can't find anywhere else than this podcast. So if you haven't clicked subscribe already, please do so. In this episode, Matt Markins from Moana teaches on the reality of a rapidly changing world that our children are growing up in. With a dramatic shift in technology and American lifestyles compared to the past, Matt speaks into this situation. He describes some old maps of doing things compared to the new ways of dealing with the difficulties that our children face today. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Again, this is Matt Markins from Awana. Let's go ahead and dive in. Good to be with you guys. My name is Matt, and uh, I shared yesterday afternoon, if you were here yesterday. So there will be some overlap from yesterday uh, on this topic, but also some new uh, content uh, as well. Um, Let me first start by, where's my screen? Okay, over here. Let me first start by making a brief introduction to my family. Uh, It's my wife, uh, Katie. Uh, She and I have been married 24 and a half years. Sounds like a seven-year-old. I'm seven and three quarters, but come, we're right at the halfway mark on our going toward our 25th year. We actually met right here in Nashville. She was born in Houston. I was born in the cornfields of Indiana, and we met up in Music City, and we've been here mostly since. We moved to Chicago for seven years, seven long winters, uh, to be a part of the, the Iwana organization, which I still am with today. Uh, we have our primary office in Chicago, but we're mostly a decentralized organization. But along the way, Katie and I got involved in children's ministry very early on in our marriage. We had we did not have our own kids and we just saw the spark in a child's eye when you could see the Holy Spirit moving inside of them and working inside of them through teaching the Bible and just interacting with them and mentoring and discipling them. And that hooked us. We were just hooked. We were like, this is really fertile, fruitful work. And that's how we got involved in children's ministry. So over the course of a couple of decades, Katie and I have been, you know, uh, large group, small group leaders, uh, Sunday school teachers, uh, head of the greeting team, elementary Sunday school directors, Awana leaders. We've kind of done it all over the course of that time period. But as time progressed, we began to notice that a question was forming inside of us. And the question is, what is it the church does that leads to lasting faith in children? What is it the church does that leads to lasting faith? So we say the church, we mean the broader church community, the the church leaders, pastors, volunteers, mentors, coaches, teachers, parents. Like what does the church do that leads to lasting faith in children? So over the course of these 24 and a half years, that's really been a driving question that formed and really kind of codified by 2013. So since 2013, through the Awana ministry, we've been able to, to uh, commission nine research projects, really an- trying to pursue a- the answer to that question. And we've learned quite a few things along the way, in addition to what we do to study the scriptures and pull research in from other organizations. So that's just a little bit about us. So I- I'm up here beside you. These are my two boys, uh, Warren in the gray sweater, Hudson in the bow tie. Warren is 20, and he's a business major. Hudson is... Uh, uh, eight, about to be 18 and trying to figure out what his major is. He's a freshman. Uh, but what I don't want to communicate is, hey, these are success stories. I've got it all figured out. Do what I say. What I want to communicate is, I, I don't, you know, we don't know yet. You know, these guys are, 
still growing up in their faith, but they are following the Lord. They do, do love the Lord, and we see the fruit of the Spirit uh, in their lives. So we're very grateful. But we're, we're just we're, we're parents alongside of you. Hopefully, it will be a grandparent one day, but not anytime soon. So, so let's go back to that generational chart uh, that we showed yesterday. Um, one thing I love about, uh, also like you know, yesterday we talked about mapping technology, which can give you a different view of how you view maps, depending on what generation you're part of. Another thing I love is, is music, like the soundtracks of our lives. So my baby boomers in the room, like who would have been like the big artists of your day when you were growing up? I, Beatles? Elvis? Beach Boys maybe? Yeah? What about my Gen Xers? Who would have been the, the big artists of your day? Michael Jackson? Madonna? The Bee Gees? Yep. Maybe U2 or Journey, something like that. Any of my millennials? Who, who would have been the artists of your day? Backstreet Boys? Yes? Nickelback. That's hilarious. I love it every time that gets said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eminem, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an Xer. Um, if it were not for the house key under the doormat, I probably wouldn't have made it. But So I'm an Xer. Um, and so when I was growing up, there was a particular artist I listened to uh, named Elton John. You're probably familiar with Elton John. Well, a couple of years ago, I was volunteering in youth group. And after youth group, my kids, my two sons, wanted to do the, that uh, post-youth group cultural norm known as Taco Bell. So they went one way, they didn't want me around, so I was, I was getting in the truck, about to head home, and I was kind of craving some Elton John. I, so I put on the greatest hit soundtrack, I push play, put the truck in drive, and I'm driving home. And this song comes on, you probably recognize this song, Rocket Man, maybe you've sung this or heard this in the song a hundred times over the years. But at one minute and 51 seconds in, Elton John sings this line. He says, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. And when I hear that line, it was like, like, like a bomb went off in my mind. I thought, that is such a true line of poetry. Like, that is a true statement. It feels like we're raising our kids on Mars. So I went home that night and immediately started Googling, like, why was this song written this way? What was the song really about? You probably know Elton John actually didn't write most of his music. Most of the lyrics are written by Bernie Taupin. Uh, they were business partners for me. I think they probably still are. Anyway, so look at, let's look at the next, the next slide, which tells us how Bern, why Bernie wrote this this way. Bernie says, Rocket Man was actually inspired by a story by Ray Bradbury from his book of science fiction short stories called The Illustrated Man. In that book, there was a story called The Rocket Man, which was about how astronauts in the future would be some sort of everyday job. So he just kind of took that idea and he ran with it. Well, typically at a conference like this, we would exegete the Bible, but just for a minute, I want to exegete Elton John. So let's look at the next slide. The lines that follow in that stanza are, so Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. The next line is, in fact, it's as cold as hell, and there's no one there to raise them if you did, and all the science I don't understand, it's just my job five days a week. So let's break this down one by one. What's that first line saying? No, uh, next slide, next slide. What's that first line saying? In fact, it's cold as hell, it's loneliness and isolation. Right. Yep, next line. And there's no one there to raise them. If you did, we call that neglect and abandonment when there's no one around. Next line, uh, what, uh, did you see that documentary during the pandemic, The Social Dilemma about the impact of the like button and Instagram and, and Facebook? We are in over our heads with digital technology we've created. We've given it to a whole 
laboratory of human beings that we have no idea the consequence of what it's going to do to them. So when you put all three of these together, it's loneliness and isolation, neglect and abandonment. We're in over our head with digital technology we do not understand. Mars is not the kind of place to raise our kids, and it's exactly where we are today. Now this is pretty remarkable, because this song was penned in 71, published in 72, right in the shadow of when we went to the moon and back. But it's more true today than it was when it was written. So let's talk about this Mars that we've woken up in, and let's, let's give some more language to it. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. So, so our time together this morning, I'd like to walk through three ideas. The first one is this. We need to fully comprehend that today's kids are being formed, keyword, today's kids are being formed in a post-Christian, highly secularized culture. That's the first point. Second point is children's ministry is fundamentally changing right before our eyes. I'd like to argue that with or without your or my participation, children's ministry is already fundamentally changing right before our eyes. Number three, children's ministry is using old maps. So yesterday I, went, I spent more time going through the new map. This morning I want to spend more time unpacking the old map to uh, be sure you guys understand why. Bobby just wanted me to, on that setting to spend more time on the new map. All right, so let's go to point number one here. Today's kids are being formed in a post-Christian, highly secularized culture. If I were in, working at a local church or pastor or kids pastor or something of that, I would, I would put the word formed on a post-it note and I would put it somewhere near where I work. I think the word formed is a key word. The formation of our children is what's happened. So you might see them a certain amount of minutes or hours a week. But when they leave you, they're constantly being formed by something. But what our desire, Jesus said, go and make disciples. In other words, form them in Imago Dei, my image. Form them in my image as my disciples or my apprentices who want to be like me. So let's, let's talk about this world and this culture that our kids are living in. If you've heard me speak before, you very likely have uh, seen me walk through this chart. This is uh, by Ed Stetzer, the researcher missiologist, uh, professor, etc. So this is three columns of data. I'm gonna go, well, no, I'll just use this as if it were that slide. You'll see three columns, past, present, and future. So in the past, you see those three kind of streams of Christians circled, starting from the top, cultural Christianity. What's a cultural Christian? A cultural Christian is someone who claims to be a Christian because perhaps they're from America or their granddaddy was a pastor or they just associate with things of Christendom, right? Secondly, you'll see congregational Christian. You guys know this is someone who says, hey, I'm a part of a congregation. We go maybe twice or six times a year, so I call myself a Christian. Uh, thirdly, that's convictional Christians at the bottom. That's us. The Apostles' Creed loosely defines us. We're united together because of the scriptures. We're centering and orienting our life around Jesus Christ, right? That's a convictional Christian. So what we see in the present is a cultural gap, a cultural divide beginning to separate. We've seen this over the last decade very, very clearly ourselves from people who call themselves Christian but act more like the secular world and think and operate and believe more like the secular world. You might see a, a particular musical artist who says, I'm a Christian. And what these other people who call themselves Christian are saying about sexuality is, that's not Christian. What? So they're redefining, Christianity's source is the Bible, 
So they're calling themselves a Christian, redefining Christianity based on their thoughts and feelings, not on convictional Christianity, which comes by faithfulness to God's word, right? So we're seeing this separation happen. Um, and so the, the, the value in this data, don't go, the, yeah, the value in this data is Setzer's trying to help us ask the question, how can we prepare the church for a very different future? How can we prepare children to thrive in their faith like Daniel? Daniel was in Babylon in a very secular culture, but he thrived in his faith, in his faith regardless of the culture uh, he found himself in. So let's give uh, some language to this. Uh, the first uh, is, is secularism. Gabe Lyons describes, sec- he defines this secularism as the dismissal of God and emphasis on individualism. Or another way of articulating this would be like the diminishing or the, si- the seeking to silence God and all things associated with God and emphasis on self. Another way of describing this is post-Christian culture. Post-Christian culture is an attempt to advance the goals of Christianity without Christ. It's the kingdom without the king. This is Pastor Mark Sayers of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you've not read his book, uh, Reappearing Church, write that down. Reappearing Church, it's part of a series. There's Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church. I see some nodding of some heads. Some of you have read those. Reappearing Church is amazing, right? So what's, what he's saying here, you know, what, what do we see are the people are protesting in the streets and they're, they're crying out for things. They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for love and freedom, restoration. These are these goals of Christianity that find themselves where? In a triune God, in the character of God, which is displayed in the Bible, which is reflected, ideally, hopefully, in the church. So the, a post-Christian culture wants those same goals and outcomes, but not their source, from where, which from where they come. So post-Christian culture has to define itself in, in, re, in relevance to Christianity. So it's pushing back against Christianity. It's saying, oh, we want these things, but we're pushing back against the source and from where they come from. So post-Christian culture doesn't mean Christianity's dead. We're going we're gonna to somehow find a way to kill Christianity. Post-Christian culture is saying we want these same things, but we don't want you, the church. We don't want Jesus, the Bible, or the source from which they come from. All right, next. So all of this boiling down to two words, which is hyper-individualization. And the best way to illustrate hyper-individualization is one word, Instagram. Instagram is like the personification of, uh, and I'm not hating on Instagram. I'm not on Instagram, but I know a lot of people are. But Instagram is a way to curate yourself in a way where you have the, the capacity or the opportunity to present this highly curated, individualized life. Look at my new, look at this meal I'm having. I'm sitting on the beach with my spouse. Look at this great experience I'm having with my kids. But, but that's a reflection of a curated image of one's life or one's self, right? But we know that's not true. We, we don't often, we don't often uh, post about our bad hair day or argument, break up with our, our boyfriend or whatever it might be. We're not, we're not always showing the suffering of humanity on Instagram, right? So uh, all of this hyper-individualization, how, how does it get reflected in the statements of our day? It's these statements right here. You're probably familiar with these. My body, my choice, uh, uh, live your truth, believe in yourself, uh, you are enough. Like this, this is really just the statements. By the way, I was at a, 
uh, home goods, you know, which I don't think as being a Gen Z kind of place. I was at home goods and I was noticing these statements on little plaques that go in your home. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's not just for young people. It's, it's all of us. So this, you know, this is all of us. So going back to the Setzer chart, or next slide, that what's the point of this, what Setzer's trying to help us see? It's the shift. We have shifted from what, what I think we would describe as a quasi-majority Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. So what this should not do is drive us to fear or anxiety or, oh my gosh, we have to figure out how to get the culture back. That's not the goal. The goal is to ask, well, how can the church remain faithful and how can we form resilient disciples in the midst of this shift, right? Like, that's the point. Daniel, you know, in the Old Testament was not wringing his hands over, how can I win the culture back? It was, how can I remain faithful to God and let the Holy Spirit move and use my life and my witness to lead other people to Him in the midst of this, right? So, okay. So, uh, this, this quote I shared yesterday is, I think, is a great summary of all of this as we think about our children. We must begin with the assumption that our children are being overly exposed with worldly discipleship and underexposed with biblical discipleship, which is why I think the key word, at least in the English language, is formed. What is forming our kids, and how can we form them in the image of Jesus, especially coming right out of the pages of the Gospels? Jesus is showing how to be a disciple, how to make disciples, and he's commissioning us to make disciples. That process that's happening there is formation, or how can we form them to be like him? So, to summarize, today's kids are being formed in a post-Christian, highly secularized culture. Before we go on to point number two, I'll stop. Any thoughts, comments, questions, declarations of heresy, anything like that? Well, the, the obvious one is screens disciples. You know, we're handing phones to our children younger and younger. I, I think uh, Xers, younger Xer parents like myself, probably had a disadvantage of not having all the information. We, like I gave my, my oldest son a phone at 12, not a flip phone, a smartphone, and I just, you know, that was essentially almost a decade ago. I just don't think we were fully, we had, I don't think we had stopped long enough to take a breath and reflect and analyze. So you guys are probably noticing 18-month-olds sitting in their stroller while their parents are doing something else and they're stro scrolling through a phone. That's tragic. That is tragic. And it's not that, I'm not saying the technology is evil, which it certainly can be. I'm just saying that's leading, to, you're just, we're training our children, we're rewiring their brains. You know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You know, we need, we need to withhold digital engagement, personal digital engagement. I don't, I don't know what the exact age is, but we need to withhold that and not be giving it to children so young. So that's, that's a big thing is the, the screen time is, we're forming them. We're forming them into the image of the world. That, that's a big uh, tragic. And I would say another one is um, parents have to own the calendar. When parents aren't owning the calendar, the calendar owns them. And so we're, 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 we're putting our children in all of these activities, whatever those may be, sports, arts, whatever, and their, their, their schedule and their life is so packed that where's the time for play? Where's the time for relationships and interaction and just being together? And parents are every bit as busy and distracted as the children are. So those are two things that jump off of my mind immediately. So uh, the, the best book we've read on the whole transgender movement um, is by, help me out here, Chakal Truman. 
uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Our team just produced a 35-minute documentary with Carl Truman. If you go to childdiscipleship.com and you scroll down, you'll see a series of videos uh, that we just did two weeks ago at the Child Discipleship Forum. Uh, you can get that, I think it's, I don't know, it's like $7, I'm not sure. But it's a beautiful, it's beautifully produced. It's something you'd be proud to show anywhere. But it's, it's Carl Truman talking through the history of the transgender movement. It's basically taking that 500-page book and boiling it down to 35 minutes. <laughs> but in a way that's told beautifully and artistically. Uh, you could show it at your church in a Sunday morning service. It's that, it's that beautiful. Uh, so I highly recommend that resource. Go to childdiscipleship.com, scroll down to where you see the videos that you can buy for $7. And the one by Carl Truman, I think it's about 30, 35 minutes. It's, it's well done, theologically faithful, biblical. Uh, I think you would really But his book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So, all right, we'll keep moving to the second one, but we can stop and talk some more along the way. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. All right, the second thought is this. Children's ministry is fundamentally changing right before our eyes. So let me, let me make my argument as to why I think that is. So those of us in this room, most of us are between the ages of 27 and uh, 67. I probably didn't get that entirely accurate, but I think most of us would be between the ages of 27 and 67. That means we were born between the ages of, ni- no, between the ages of 1955 and 1995. Here's why I think it's important just to take a moment to realize that. Those of us who were born between 1955 and 1995 are making the decisions around how to form and disciple today's eight-year-old, okay? So who is today's eight-year-old? Let's talk about a little bit about cultural formation. So cultural formation, we mentioned this, Tim talked about this yesterday. And we're going to talk, we've talked about it already today, right? We've described cultural formation as the dominant, broader culture. It's the water that the fish are swimming in. It's post-Christian culture. It's secularism. You could call also cultural Christianity. We could call it naturalism, hedonism. We could just keep going and describe it. These are the dominant narratives. If, you're, if our children go to public schools, they're, they're, they're picking this up. Um, if, they're, if they're breathing and they're awake, they're picking this up. You know, it's cultural formation. So... The thing is, today's eight-year-old is going to spend his or her life, adult life, between the years of 2035 and 2084. So those of us who are born between 1955 and 1995, 
are in charge and in leadership in the church or volunteering and serving, and we're the ones making the decisions about how to form these children who are living in a world we can hardly comprehend, and they're going to live their adult life between the years 2035 and 2085. So let's talk about their future. Their future, we just mentioned one of these kind of new budding topics. Trans, I mean, it's not new, but it feels new. Tra transgenderism. There's also transhumanism. There's the splinter net. There's digital currencies. And we have a list of five or six other things we didn't want to overcrowd the slide with. But will you raise your hand if 10 years ago, these, at least one of these items was not really on your mind? There's, I, there's probably a handful of nerds in the room, and we need you, who know what all these are and could give a whole workshop on these. So, but few of us know, really have a competence level of knowledge of what these are, right? So, so transhumanism, this is this, this merging of the human body and science and technology, right? Like we can, we can create a self that, that perhaps could live to be 120 years or two, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we conquer death, essentially, right? Uh, so the, these are all, they're all driven by hyper-individualization. It goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve had a choice. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself, right? So that's kind of what's driving all of this, right? So this, the point being, our children, the eight-year-old today is going to live their adult life in 2035 to 2085, and they're going to live in a world that many of us won't see and very few of us can fully comprehend. So what's the problem? The problem is plan continuation bias. It may be a new term to you, but if you just think about it just for a second, you can get it really quickly. Plan continuation bias. We are continuing forward with our plan of children's ministry based on the biases of the past of being born between 1955 and 95 and what culture was like then and what all we, all the assumptions that we've made. But starting around 2007, the world started, the world that was already very rapidly changing started changing even more rapidly because in 2007, the iPhone was released into the market, it was popularized, and now there's a whole new interstate system that didn't even exist prior to this device. So, so, so the rapid rate of change in human individualism, hyper-individualism, just like the curve just went it just went up significantly. So our problem is plan continuation bias. So in one word, the best way to explain plan continuation bias is Titanic. The Titanic is the classic textbook example. What's the line from the movie? Who's the guy that played Rose's fiance? No, the other guy, the, the bad guy. Billy Zane. Billy Zane said, God himself cannot sink the ship. You know, like that's that, that, the, the dominance that that line played in, this, in the movie, you know? Uh, but that was, that's the idea that, you know, based on all the assumptions of the past, this will not happen, right? So our problem, it, what, the problem that us in this room have, is we, we have biases based on the past about how, what needs to be happening in children's ministry. So let me, let me get to the children's ministry of, a, of today was built for a past era. There we go. So the, the blueprint that we're working off of um, of children's ministry was kind of formulated in, in the 70s, 80s, and b definitely by the 90s. And we started publishing the blueprints in the early 2000s to the point where there were some kind of best-selling children's ministry books in the early 2000s. Then it was prol proliferated with the, with the internet and web technology. So the, the blueprints that we're operating off of were built for a past era on a certain past set of assumptions. Large group, small group, interaction, 
these kids are coming from an overall majority Christian culture. It's built on all of those assumptions, right? And by the way, that's not necessarily all, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm saying we just have to ask different questions about where, what's forming these kids today and how do we need to maybe take a different approach in forming them in today's world. Does that make sense? So we're, as we're wrapping up, um, oh, oh yeah, yeah, so, ch- so children's ministry, um, like we were looking at yesterday, we, we think of children's ministry as looking a lot more like this, uh, like this set of tactics, a set of methodologies, right? Uh, we think if, if you were new in children's ministry today, your immediate assumption might be, well, I got I to gotta run the schedule, right? Like June's coming up. We got to do our VBS and we've got to have something going on for Sunday. You know, maybe we need to reevaluate these. We just make all of these assumptions. If, if we stay here and we, and we just keep this as the main driver of children's ministry, proliferating these programs, and we don't pause or get above it to ask the harder questions, we're, we're going to be guilty of planned continuation bias, right? Where, next slide, when we put these two images side by side and we ask ourselves, is what drives children's ministry, should it be the perpetuation of these ministries that we've always run, which may be the right ones, by the way, may, may be the right methods, or should we start with the child first and say, who is today's child? What world are they living in? What is the best approach based on the scriptures, based on what we know about child spiritual formation and discipleship? How should we build our children's ministry in light of today's child's environment and the culture? And what's going to be most effective at uh, engaging them in child discipleship to lead them to Christ and to help them grow as a disciple? If, if I were at a church today, if this were day one on the job, what I, what I would not do is say, guys, we got to kill everything. we got to burn it down. Like I, I would not do that. I would not do that. What I would do is say, while we're continuing to maintain the current, let's set aside time and space to have some critical conversation around really understanding today's child, really understanding the world that's forming them, but also understanding, like we discussed yesterday, what are the primary factors that do form lasting faith in children and then I would kind of put all that on a whiteboard and say, okay, what, what, is, what, is this, what is this saying? You know, what is this saying about how we should approach uh, reaching kids for Christ and discipling them in, in a very different context than when you and I would have grown up, right? I think, I think that would be my starting point. By the way, I, we probably would land on some of these same methodologies, these same programs, but we might approach them a little differently, right? That's, that's, that's what I think would be happening um, as, if we were to walk through that exercise. So our problem, next slide, is plan continuation bias, and I think we've got to get above that. So before we go on to point number three, which is children's ministry is using old maps, um, any discussion about, uh, I guess the prevailing thought was children's ministry is fundamentally changing right before our eyes. Any, any thoughts, comments, questions? So years ago, I used to struggle with the word innovation in church. I used to struggle with that because I was misunderstanding in some ways. Maybe I, maybe I wasn't misunderstanding, but maybe there were some ways I was misunderstanding. I think, I think what, what, where I would not agree with you is Deuteronomy 6 isn't plan continuation bias, it's divine revelation. And divine revelation never changes, and I, and I know we would agree on that. So what I'm not saying is, well, we gotta throw the gospel out because the gospel's just not working. You know, no, no one would ever say that. This, I don't want this to sound like an, an, an advertorial, but we've invested in this because we believe in it. Yeah. We've just launched, uh, uh, it's called the Resilient Child Discipleship Training. Resilient Child, if you go to childdiscipleship.com and you go to the sub-navigation in the top right-hand corner, 
uh, if you scroll down, you'll see under training, resilient child discipleship training. We, all this research that, that led to those three primary factors, belong, believe, become, or relationships, engaging the scriptures and experiences, we built a whole training around that, which, which gets to the very practical methodological level. The way the training, wor- the way the training works, in a, in a session we go over five things. What's the definition, like let's say belong. What's the definition of belong? So we define it. What's the insight? In other words, why is it important? Thirdly, what are the four practices any volunteer or parent can, can embody and do on a regular basis? What's the goal for that child? In other words, if I'm embodying belonging with that child, what, what's my goal? What am I aiming for? And then what's the prayer? How can we pray for that child? So we do that in all three of the belong, believe, become, or relationship, scripture, engagement, experiences. So we're tr- we do this training. We built it. We built it with Mark Matlock and Barna. But we did it because we want to bring to the church something really practical so that we can, on, on a volunteer and on a parent level, we can embody it. I'm not prescribing. I'm not in the local church. You're in the local church. I'm not. I've never been on staff, apart from being the janitor and facilities manager, I've never been on staff at a local church. I'm saying I would start with dialogue in my, among my team on, on understanding today's child. Where's today's child at now? What is their future going to look like? And how's all that forming them? That's where I would start. By starting, because we might be guilty of, well, life was hard for me in the 1980s and 90s too. These kids are going to get over. Well, that's a true statement. But they're dealing with different variables you and I were not dealing with. So just a level of understanding of what those are. That's where I would start. Then I would like pin that, pin that on the board metaphorically. Then I would move to, well, what are the primary factors that lead to lasting faith? in children, which I would argue are somewhere in relationships, gospel, scripture engagement, and experiences. There's a lot of research that has a lot of overlap with those kind of four areas. So experiences, how do I help them experience God? How do I help them use their gifts and experience reality? How do I help them navigate culture and experience what they're, you know, so experiences, scripture, gospel, and relationships. So I, I would take what I pinned on the board around their world and what's forming them. Then I would take what are the primary objectives that lead to lasting faith. And with those two things in mind, I would then reevaluate my methodologies and my tactics and ask, are we, are we taking this into account and are we starting with these objectives as we employ these methodologies? All right, we're going to fly through this. Uh, we talked about the old map yesterday, and then we talked about the side-by-side with reality, again, the point being, we wouldn't shame the old map makers. If they were right here in front of us, we would thank them. But if we were still using that old map, shame on us, right? That's, that's probably not a great idea. So um, then, we, then we acknowledge, hey, this isn't about shaming the past. You know, these cities, the cities that, uh, we're gonna talk about the old cities in this, this part of the talk. These cities are the dominant cities, uh, or the forces of influence within children's ministry. The second thing we're saying is, we have more knowledge and insight now than when they were built. And thirdly, we got to ask ourselves if they should remain the same influential forces in the future that they've been in the past. So guys, I'm going to fly through this. Okay. So the dominant city on the old map is church growth and entertainment. So there's kind of five models. Uh, this is overgeneralizing. This is not comprehensive, but there's five kind of popular level models in the church, the teaching model, attractional, missional, house church, and the formational so essentially what we're saying is the dominant model of today that kind of influences the majority of churches in the West is the church growth model. Even the small country church up in the holler 
will put a sign out front that says gospel quartet coming, you know, next week. But to what motivation? What's their motivation? They're trying to get, they're trying to bring in people. So attractional model, we can say, oh, it's just those mega churches. They're just, you know, they're just the bad mega church. You know, like, like this, we, we kind of have this mentality, but we all, are, you know, most of us have been very involved in the attractional model. Okay, next slide. Uh, this is the motivate. this is the, the definition that our team came up with. And as you read it, it's not all bad. There's a lot of good stuff. I mean, who doesn't want to attract more people? We want, we want to do anything we can to remove barriers to, to help people see Jesus. But at the same time, we also know God is sovereign. So there's that whole thing. Like, how do we wrestle through that? Uh, but the, the real problem is the motivation of numerical growth. We are descendants of Henry Ford, right? Efficiencies. Let's make, let's sell as many as possible. Let's rule the world. You know, like that's, like that, that's kind of in us as Americans. And so the numerical growth, we kind of latched onto that and that just became the driver, right? So that's really, so what did we do? We attached entertainment to that. I went to a children's ministry conference last year and I walked around the exhibit hall and I played a mental game and I, I kept tabs of like, how many of these booths would I kind of hashtag as entertainment? And it was two out of three. So 65 booths out of 100, I would have said these are kind of entertainment. That, that's kind of telling of kind of where we are. It's so important to us that we've said, hey, we've got to have a lot of things to entertain kids uh, to bring them to Jesus. So again, I'm not slamming that. I'm just saying this is just reality. This is kind of the world that we're living in. And we need to ask, should this remain the same influential force in the future? that it's been in the past. What role should entertainment? Jesus was kind of entertaining. You know, he's drawing things in the sand and he's telling story about a sheep or he's telling story about a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. Like those, when, it, when I hear those verses, there's movies in my head. I'd like to see your movie in your head and my movie and put them side by side. Are they similar? You know, Jesus was very entertaining in a sense. So we just have to ask what role should it play in the midst of the whole thing, right? So the second city is relevance. Now, if you're like me, go back to that uh, generational chart, next slide. If you're like me, uh, you can kind of look at this chart and go, oh boy, I'm feeling more irrelevant every day. I am just getting so old. So I want to encourage you uh, by announcing this. Mom jeans are back. <laughs> Mom jeans are back. We could, we could feel, you know, everything comes back again. So at some point, we're going to feel more relevant again. Okay, that's a joke. That's a joke. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what does relevance actually mean? Relevance is the quality or state of being closely connected to or appropriate. Again, I said yesterday, if we were to go to France, or this time, let's say, China, you know, if we were gonna live in China, well, we need to know the customs, the culture, the expectations, the language. Otherwise, we will be completely irrelevant. Like, so that's a good sense of, Jesus came to the world, he walked among us, and he had a sense of relevance because he knew the language, the culture, the customs. Now, he wasn't afraid to bring God into that and disrupt all of that, but he knew what relevance was. So that's what we're not, I'm not saying we don't need to be appropriately relevant. Uh, what I am saying is Disney, right? Disney. So in 2010, there was a massive explosion of children's ministry bloggers blogging about Disney. We got to make our spaces more like Disney. And this, this not only was then, it is still now. It's, it's, it's so been woven into the fabric of many, many churches uh, in the West, especially in the United States. Uh, and it's, this, it's a set of assumptions that if we make our spaces more Disney-like, it'll engage children's minds and hearts. Uh, but that, I, I believe that's a faulty set of assumptions. Again, we want a clean space. We want an appropriate space. But the data says that it's relationships that really is what cultivates faith, 
when you bring a relationship and the scripture together. I don't believe in magic, but it's like magic. Like something happens when you bring relationship and, and scripture together. Something's happening. And by the way, that's what Jesus did too, right? So, um, so we want a clean space. We want a safe space. Of course, that's common sense. That's appropriate relevance. But is this pursuit of cool, is this pursuit of amazingness, is it resulting in lasting faith in children? There's, no, there's been no research done on that. And I think we all know intuitively in our gut, it's not our future. It's not the answer. Okay, so uh, Brett McCracken says in his book, Hipster Christianity, the pursuit of cool Christianity is exhausting and unsustainable. It's exhausting. And think about all the news, like we feel this pressure in children's ministry. Well, we've got to have new t-shirts for the volunteers. We've got to have a new look. We've got to have a new logo for our children's ministry. We have to have new this, new that, new that. It's exhausting and unsustainable. Again, I'm not saying none of those things have their place. It's asking the question in, in perspective of the whole thing, where does that fit, right? There might come a time where you need new carpet or a new mural on the background. There, there's going to be times where those are the appropriate things, but are they your driver and to what point do they drive your ministry? And the third city on the old map is Bible Light. I'd have a hard time imagining at a conference like this uh, that there's churches using the Bible Light strategy, but I, I, could, be, I could be wrong. So uh, if I step on toes, I believe in this, so I'm not sorry, but I'll just try to step gently, okay? So what is the Bible Light strategy? Our team worked with Sam Luce. Some of you may know Sam Luce. He's a children's ministry expert uh, that I work closely with. The Bible Light strategy isn't necessarily inaccurate, but it is incomplete. It emphasizes values, morals, and character from the Bible in a way that's unrooted from the gospel. We would all agree that values, moral, and character are important. No one's saying that's not the case, right? When the Bible talks about courage or or love, or unity, or whatever the, the value or virtue is, that's a good thing. But no, no, not yet. Good character is not the goal of a Christian. It's the byproduct. It's like the fruit of what a life that's been cultivated in Jesus in discipleship. So, so let me break this down by saying this. Um, I heard this saying as a young man that has stuck with me, and the saying is, it's not necessarily inaccurate, but it is incomplete. It's not inaccurate, but it's incomplete when talking about something. What that statement is saying is one word, it's nuance. There's nuance involved in how we communicate. We can communicate with subtle nuances that lead us down the wrong road, and the Bible light strategy is doing that. Let's walk through this. This is how we should teach the Bible. When you look at church history, orthodoxy, this is how the Bible uh, should be taught. A high view of scripture, God's word is true, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's faithful, faithful legacy, a high, high level of reliability, or a textual criticism, right? Like we have a high view of criticism, but also gospel-centric, that from Genesis to Revelation, God is telling one story, a unified story that's factual and historically verified, and, and it's a story of God's story. It's also a story of redemption through Jesus Christ. So what happens is when we have a value-centric teaching but a high view of Scripture, we're guilty of leading our kids toward legalism or moralism. When we have a high view of scripture, but we're not teaching gospel-centric, we're teaching value-centric, we are guilty of legalism or moralism. Now, the problem, not, not yet, the problem with legalism or moralism, legalism or moralism says the problem is out there, and the answer is good character in here. Well, none of us can ever completely achieve that. The gospel doesn't say the problem is out there. The gospel says the problem is actually in here, right? And the answer is Jesus and how he forms 
the good character in us, right? That he, he forms the fruit of the Spirit in us. So it's nuance, right? It's not that character values and virtues are bad. It's the way we communicate that it's about a person and a relationship, not about me form, having good character formed inside of me. It's subtle nuances. Okay, now if there's a lower view of Scripture in value-centric teaching, which I, th- I just cannot imagine that that's in this room, what, what happens is we lead kids to moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't have time to unpack that. If you're unfamiliar with MTD, write that term down, moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, it's a term, I believe, uh, created by Christian Smith. Um, and you can read about that in some of his writing. But, so let's keep going. So here's the difference. Oh, yeah, I pretty much already nailed that. The difference is communicating the values on the front side of the cross is very different, next slide, from communicating the value on the back side of the cross. One of them says because of Jesus, even when we're teaching little children, the subtle nuances in how we communicate, if we're teaching about courage or joy or obedience, we can still teach those values and virtues, but attach them to the person of Jesus and the work that he does in us and the work that he did on the cross. And when we do that, we're giving kids subtle nuances consistently each week that remind us of the gospel and that teach us it's about the person of Christ, not about moralism or legalism or MTD. Um, uh, this is a big deal in the churches in the West. Uh, when you look at the Barner research and you look at how low some of the results are, I think a big part of it is because we're not teaching the Bible in the way the Bible's intended to be taught. So kids are, kids are getting other stories other than the gospel actually in our churches. That's a big deal. All right, where are we going? So just like, um, yeah, to kind of land the plane here. I, I, don't even, I don't even land the plane there. I'm going to stop. We got like two seconds left. Thoughts, questions? I don't even think I would say that. I, I, would, say, I would say because of Jesus. Because of, you're going to face times in life that are going to be very difficult. Even a little, even a, you're the expert here. You can, you can do this with five-year-olds. You can say because, because of Jesus, you're going to be in a tough situation one day and Jesus is going to meet your need. He's going to walk you through that. You, you, you might be in a situation where you're kind of facing a giant too. He will be with you. You and I know we don't always slay our giants. Sometimes people file bankruptcy and they're really good committed Christians. <laughs> they didn't slay that giant. So we, we need to teach kids that uh, courage, it's, it's, it's about Jesus can give us the courage to be faithful to him and to live through those moments. But we don't always slay our giants. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Yeah. But he does. The person of, so, so David, David was a type of Christ, you know, helping kids see this story of David. Isn't that similar to what, how Jesus conquered death on the cross? Like that's, that's gospel teaching, gospel-centric, as opposed to moralistic or value-centric teaching. I feel like I really rushed that and probably didn't do a great job of explaining that. Hopefully that got us a little closer. Yeah, I'm going to be guilty of using Awana as a lens here. But on our website, childdiscipleship.com, if you scroll down, you can get all of, our, all of our keynote sessions from the last two years of Child Discipleship Forum. So we do a thing in the fall called Child Discipleship Forum. We just did it two weeks ago right here in Nashville. We have all the videos of all of our 2021 speakers, all of our 2022 speakers. We curate them. Of last year's 16 speakers, only two of them were Awana. The other 14 were not. Of this year's 16 speakers, only one was a one on the other 15. So my point is, we're, we're already curating that and we're centralizing it in that website. And I think you would get a lot of that by going there. Let me make it more difficult. Yes. Just give us like your top three that come to your mind. The top three that come to my mind. Um, uh, what, what we are aiming to do, what Awana is aiming to do with children, 
John Mark Comer is aiming to do with adults. So he, he is a pastor who just uh, resigned after 20 years of ministry the last year. He's now running a nonprofit. It's called Practicing the Way. John, it, Mark. John Mark Comer. It's called Practicing the Way. It's about practicing the ways of Jesus. It's about how do, how do I be a disciple? His big thing, he, he read a thousand books and boiled discipleship down to three things, including the scriptures. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. So when we talk about belong, believe, become, and what those mean, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And he breaks every one of those down into a series of practices. And so I would I highly recommend <clears throat> what he's doing. Um, another one would be, who are some of the other ones that we've really recommended? Oh, before, before you say that, another one, he has another podcast called This Cultural Moment, which gives the cultural formation conversation and really helps us understand what's forming us and what's forming today's children and students. Um, uh, what are some of the other people we look to a lot, Kelly? Mar oh, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I should have already remembered. That was great. Mark Sayers is one of the most brilliant minds on the planet out of 7.5 billion people. He is a Christ follower. He's a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's probably, it's, it's like, you know, in the NFL, you have these underrated players. They're making big impact, but they don't get a lot of press time. I don't think Mark Sayers gets enough press time. He's a, he's a brilliant thinker. He's also not trying to self-promote himself. He's just head down doing the work. But all of his books, the first two I would read are Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church. Uh, it talks about the renewal of God, the renewal of the revival and the spirit of God in post-Christian culture, or historically in non-Christian cultures, and how God brings back revival. I think we're all interested in that topic. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Kelly, any others? Oh, Shelly Malia the, on childdiscipleship.com, her talk. Again, I think those are all just seven bucks each, but you can buy the whole lot for 99. Anyway, but the, the, her talk on ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. That's what ACEs means if you're not familiar with that, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Her talk on that is amazing. What else were you gonna say? Denise Kiesbo from two years ago. Uh, she's a brilliant, uh, brilliant professor uh, of children's ministries, one of the longstanding children's ministry professors in our space. Thank you guys, appreciate being with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed that from Matt Markins. Up next, we got track session number two coming at you from Awana. So make sure you click the subscribe button for this podcast so that you know exactly when I release that next episode. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Makers podcast, and I'll catch you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.